shot uh, and our first of many we hope uh, artist profiles for the year uh, I'm Matt Risby hello everyone and uh, joining me as always is Ed Davis at a kind of ungodly early hour hi how's it going yeah. <laughs> hey, I kind of wanted to see if, if kind of regular listeners will kind of uh, have you sound more tired than me sound more tired yeah I think this we'll see if this has a different energy this is uh, I think this is better than the last time we did this when uh we were halfway through an episode and we lost the internet and then we had to start again the following morning and I that my energy drops in mid-sentence. Yeah, you're talking about Once Upon a Time in Anatolia as well, which you can probably <laughs> read something into that. But anyway, yeah, like I said, we're going to do uh, uh, kind of our first uh, specific uh, kind of artist profile and, and for our first one, I think we, we talked about it on a previous episode, we're going to talk about uh, Richard Linklater, uh, who is a kind of a fascinating character in, in, in many ways. Um, why why would we pick someone like uh, Linklater first, Ed? Well, when we were kind of drawing up a list of people that we wanted to talk about, he is someone whose films we'd both seen a lot of and that we both liked a lot of, but also someone who has kind of a varied uh, filmography in terms of style and, and quality, but also, you know, uh, he's kind of the man of the moment currently because he is... A one of the front runners for winning the uh, best director Oscar for Boyhood, and it seems like this is a good time to kind of look back at his his body of work and, and what he's done over a very a surprisingly um, long career, considering he started out sort of very uh, very low budget and, and didn't really seem like the sort of person who sort of would have that sort of longevity. Mm. Absolutely. And we're going to kind of break down uh, these artist profiles into talking about um, one or two films from kind of a, a, set, ca- a set of categories. Um, the first one uh, is we're going to talk about um, Richard Linklater's Breakthrough, uh, which in this case was his debut film, Slacker. It reminds me of an apprehension I saw in France in the early 40s. They had finally found some known criminal and they were interrogating him. Uh, something to the effect of, it was you who did the job on the Rue de Flandeau. No, it wasn't me. The concierge recognized you. It's someone who looks like me. She knew your name. It's someone who looks like me and has the same name. She recognized your clothes and hair. She looks like me, has the same name, clothes and hair. They found your fingerprints. He looks like me, has the same name, clothes, hair, and the same fingerprints. (laughs) Uh, an important film, Ed, uh, mainly because it kind of announced the arrival of a, of a huge talent, but also um, kind of went on to define a generation, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it popularised the term slacker to refer to that whole sort of Gen X thing, an entire, like you say, an entire generation of people, uh, and to really define the idea of, of people in that era as people who were... Uh, kind of listless intelligent but kind of listless and apathetic and you can really see that in the way that it's essentially a film entirely about very intelligent people who don't really seem to have much on just having sort of long winding conversations about life love and philosophy it's interesting as well that richard Linklater starts his film career with himself kind of uh, delivering the first of the monologues the film is, is kind of broken up into 
into kind of these little vignettes, aren't they? They kind of lead into each other. Yeah, it's uh, for anyone who's ever seen the Simpsons episode 22 short films about Springfield, which is actually based more on Pulp Fiction, but I've always thought is closer to slacker in form where you have people go through these little, essentially these little shorts where they kind of talk to each other and then the camera will kind of linger on a background character who kind of walks through the frame and then suddenly they're the subject of the next film. Um, Yeah, it's very... It's also a very important film in terms of uh, independent cinema. I think that one and Sex, Lies and Videotape are often cited as two of the really key films in uh, revitalising American independent film in the early 90s. And I think you can really see, certainly someone like uh, Kevin Smith has really uh, cited it as a huge influence because he saw it and kind of suddenly realised that, you know, in in the best possible way, anyone can make a film. Um, That if someone can take $30,000 and make a film that has no kind of basis in a traditional narrative and is really just people having conversations, then, you know, I think that that kicked open a lot of doors and and inspired a, a whole generation of people who didn't go to film school, who didn't uh, kind of have that, that professional or academic background to really just kind of grab cameras and go out and try and make their own films. It's uh, interesting to note that, um, yeah, it was kind of unfunded film, um, or kind of not certainly not funded by a big studio, but it was made with the support of uh, the Austin uh, Film Society, which is um, a kind of a non-profit that Richard Linklater and some friends founded uh, kind of to make the film or to kind of celebrate film around um, Austin. Um, and it's really cool that when it was the film's, I think, 20th anniversary, uh, might have been a couple of years ago, um, the Austin Film Society remade Slacker shot for shot. Yeah, I saw that. I was trying to look up uh, look up information on it because I remember reading the story. I just uh, that they were going to remake it. I didn't know if it actually happened. But yeah, it is really cool that both uh, Linklater's career and the Austin Film Society have, have lasted that long, you know, that you can really see... Uh, this one guy, his and you know his friends, their efforts have kind of had a great impact over time. Both because obviously it's like you know inspired a lot of people, but also I believe that the Austin Film Society is does a lot of good work in terms of trying to get people, you know, to help people make films and to also just promote film in the Austin area. Yeah, it kind of starts. It's kind of a preservationist society. It also screens kind of films that aren't necessarily screened a lot, and they give out kind of funding bursaries and grants and stuff. So it's kind of interesting to see that the 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 group that helped Linklater make his first film is now, you know, extending into the future, helping other filmmakers make their first films. Mm, definitely. Um, which of the segments in the film is is your favourite? Because of you know it's it's hard to talk about Slacker as having a kind of a big overarching narrative, um, but you know which, which of the individual scenes do you kind of you feel are really stand up as their own little shorts? Uh, if I go back and think, um, the guy with the TVs, mm-hmm. um, yeah. that's the one I kind of instantly think of. Um, the I think it's the second or third one with the car crash that turns out to be deliberate in the end. Mm. Um, that's a pretty cool one. Um, but it, it's kind of strange that whenever I rewatch Slacker, I kind of remember, kind of see ones that I haven't remembered, and they kind of come back to me as, as oh, I kind of forgot this one. But it's weird that a film that is so many little shorts doesn't feel more disjointed. Yeah, I think the 
there's kind of an evenness of tone. It's quite a gentle film, even mm. though it also has like someone running on screen and trying to sell Madonna's pap smear and stuff. You know, it's got <laughs> there. There is kind of a uh, or or my favorite bit, which is the old anarchist talking about the Texas Tech suiting with kind of nostalgia. Mm. Um, you know, there's kind of a darkness to it, but I think the the general tone, and you can see this in some of his later films, um, particularly the sort of the before films that you can, there's this kind of gentle love of conversation that kind of pulses throughout it. So even though there are points where it's just very naturalistic and points with like the TV guy where it seems to get a bit weird and wacky, um, it doesn't really, it never feels like it's kind of going off the rails or going in directions that feel out of step with the rest of the film. Mm, Yeah. yeah. So it's his, Kind of breakthrough, but it's also kind of a, still a huge achievement. Um, uh, even now, looking back at it, um, that he kind of managed to do that. Um, um, so yeah, he's kind of going to the opposite end of the spectrum. We're now going to talk about um, Richard Linklater's uh, most kind of successful film, and we kind of mean going to talk about it in success in terms of money, um, which, when talking about an independent director, um, could be quite interesting. Um, in Linklater's case, his most successful film is School of Rock. So what would you say to a bully, Zach? I don't know. No, come on. If someone was right up in your grill, what would you say? I don't know. If someone was pushing you around, telling you what to do, what would you say? Step off. Step out! Step out! Step out! Step out! Everybody! Step out! Um, interesting kind of mini period of Richard Linklater's career. Um, we kind of made a couple of studio pictures as a as a director for hire, but that kind of doesn't quite tell the story by saying he was a director for hire. Because if anyone listened to the recent um, WTF podcast with Richard Linklater, um, kind of gets the story behind those that he was kind of, you know, the the films those two films were going to happen anyway, and the people involved in making the films in the case of. Um, School of Rock, it was kind of Mike White um, kind of tried to convince him to come on and, and kind of wrest it away from from the kind of studio's worst excesses. Yeah, I think that you can really see his hand, not necessarily in, uh, you know, it's not like, that. School of Rock doesn't feel like Slacker or Waking Life or something. It, it has a very kind of clear plot and it has a, uh, you know, it's kind of built around a star term by uh, by Jack Black. But I think that you can see he uh, doesn't do anything to kind of tamp down Mike White's sort of darker sensibilities. Obviously, Mike White, for people who don't know, uh, most recently wrote the HBO show Enlightened, which is very, very good. But prior to School of Rock, his work included things like uh, Alternate 100, Favourite Chuck and Buck, uh, The Good Girl. Um, yeah, he, he was someone who had done a lot of dark dramas, so writing a film that's kind of a very broad appealing film aimed at sort of family audiences he could have been 
they could have tamped down a lot of his darker, more subversive ideas. But you can really see that Linklater, although he doesn't put a kind of a huge stamp on the film compared to some of his more personal works, he doesn't also kind of try and uh, soften the edges too much. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's um, in in the WTF episode. He talks about how, um, uh, like, he didn't actually view the films as any different, um, even though the, the budgets were kind of you know massively bigger than what he would be used to. Um, he just kind of talked about working in a kind of uh, the same way, but you know, working with kind of like a different level of comfort and you know, being able to take a bit more time to do things. Um, and it's interesting he followed this with uh, Bad News Bears remake. Um, again, a film that was going to be made anyway, but it kind of at that point he came on board and, and kind of did the job. And it's it's interesting to hear him say that he didn't ever do any of the films for money, because um, you know I'm sure he gets offered an awful lot and gets was getting offered a lot more than those films uh, around that time. Um, but to see him work within the studio system on those two is actually quite interesting. Mm, yeah, uh, particularly in School of Rock because. It, the film kind of walks that fine line in that it's kind of a satire of a particular kind of inspirational teacher movie. It has a lot of similar beats to something like Dead Poet Society, mm. but it comes at it from this very kind of a very skewed perspective of what if, you know, the Robin Williams character in Dead Poet Society was a complete fraud mm. <laughs> and a guy who just came in and pretend, or what if he wasn't really into poetry? What if he was into very loud, loud rock music? And uh, I think that, it, it mines a lot of humor from that in in but also it does and this is a weird comparison but it reminds me a little bit of blue ruin uh from last year in that blue ruin is a film that's kind of a deconstruction of revenge for those that also is a really exciting revenge thriller in its own right um and school of rock is a kind of deconstruction and a, a satire of inspirational teaching movies but it does have sort of genuine heart and sentiment to it as well and that's a very hard uh, balance to kind of carry off but I think the film uh, that's pop- one of the reasons why the film was such a success because on the one hand you can kind of laugh at the way it's poking fun at these conventions but those conventions also are there and they also work in a really appealing way mm. and it's a lot of fun isn't it uh, it's called a rock it's a film I didn't expect to like a great deal but um, other than the Sarah Silverman character who is uh, um, not blessed with uh, more than the one dimension of writing, mm. uh, it's uh, it's quite a ride. Yeah, she it's a pretty thankless role for her. I'd actually completely forgotten she was in it, which I think is a, a testament to how uh, poor that role is. But she can't yeah, she's just she's just incredibly whiny, mm. and just to be the kind of the the fun sucking girlfriend, which is like mm. it's not really a great role for anyone. I don't think there could have been anyone who could have really uh, done much with that. But yeah, it is. It's it's really really fun, and it is. Uh, I think it's interesting comparing that and uh, Bernie as the two films that uh, Linklater and Jack Black made together because I think both play to his strengths in a really good way. This is this is probably the best of his big outsized performances in film. Um, this and him punting the dog off the bridge in uh, Anchorman, <laughs> probably. Um, yeah. But yeah, like it makes really good use of his energy here. Whereas in Bernie, they really kind of tamp it down and they kind of, you know, they kind of sit on it to to really push it in a interesting and and weird way. In terms of uh, kind of his financial success, uh, those two films have been uh, far and away his uh, uh, kind of you know most successful, um, you know, because of the studio backing. 
Um, but kind of what's what's kind of behind that pack and how far off is it in terms of what it kind of um, takes to the box office just to give people a bit of perspective about what it's like working in the studio system to not? Uh, well, the uh, School of Rocks uh, somewhere in about the 80 million range. So it was a pretty sizable hit. Uh, for and also it cost about thirty million, so it did pretty well in its in terms of its budget. Then Bad News Bears was about thirty something million, and it lost it lost a bit of money. Um, so so there from number one to number two, there was quite a big difference. And then directly behind that, uh, you've got Boyhood, his most recent film, which earned about twenty six million. And then, wow! And then a lot of his other stuff is like the the sort of between fifteen and then sub sub one million range. He's Someone who, uh, yeah, his he is genuinely uh, independent in in the fact that his films tend not to make a huge amount of money, but also they don't cost a huge amount of money. So I think it's rare for any of his films to uh, lose money. Mm. It's interesting to talk about Linklater and money and budgets and things, kind of in now because we kind of are, like you said at the top of the uh, episode, we are kind of awaiting the Oscars and. Um, a lot, a lot is said about the Oscars. We kind of say a lot about it, but the one thing that always always remained true is that it will certainly kind of add a few zeros to your fee and open a few doors that would necessarily wouldn't have been kind of necessarily open beforehand. If he wins for Boyhood um, and coming off the success of Boyhood, um, do you think those offers are going to come in? Do you think he's going to find himself working with bigger budgets? Do you think that he is someone who has kind of thus far made a career out of just you know plowing his own furrow that he'll just continue doing that yeah i think it'd be very unlike i think it's unlikely that he would uh just kind of go straight down into becoming a studio director because i think he likes you know living and working out of austin i don't think he'd particularly like having to like go to hollywood to work there which you'd have to do if uh if you were wanting to take on the big offers I think he he seems like the sort of person who would always be worked better as an outsider, and although he probably you, we might see him take a few more studio jobs uh, if he likes the project, I think the, the the thing with him winning an Oscar would be they would the offers would start pouring in, but he'd still probably be quite picky about it. You know, mm-hmm. there's a reason why he's following up all of this success with like a baseball movie set in the '80s. You know, he mm-hmm. he's interested in telling his own stories. And I don't, unless something interested to him, I don't think he's not like a, a young, hungry director who feels he needs to kind of make big projects that will really connect to a huge number of people. He's someone who is, you know, has, has found his niche and it just so happens that uh, this time the Academy is on the same sort of wavelength as him. Mm. I was kind of wondering more along the lines of, of um, you know, Less though, you know, will they ask him to direct the Spider-Man reboot, uh, <laughs> and more along the fact that like they're like, well, we understand the way you work. We're just going to give you money now. Like, do you think do you think that he'll find his projects easier to fund and easier to do because uh, he's an Oscar-winning director, um, or do you think the only way that people in Hollywood would accept him into their circle is by you know pulling him over to the dark side of coming to? work in LA and stuff. And like, right. He has kind of openly said he he absolutely fucking hates being in LA and just, you know, works and, and and lives in Austin as as kind of much as he can. Yeah. I think that he, it it might be a little easier, but at the same time, I I think probably the, the biggest change is that IFC will probably, you know, give him money to do anything he wants now. I think the, his, cause he's worked with them a fair bit in the past and obviously 
Boyhood's kind of their big crowning success uh, of recent years. Uh, it's their second most successful film after My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Uh, wow. But there's a pretty big difference. I think that made like $200 million. So, um, but yeah. So, what so what a world that. we live in where that happened. Hmm? What a world we live in when that happened. I know, that one's crazy. Um, yeah, if you just kind of follow that one, that's the the one of the, the, the most incredible examples of a film, just having legs and running for an incredibly long time. It was never but then like, also disappearing completely. Like if, <laughs> if you ask anyone what their favourite film is, no one's going to say My Big Fat Greek Wedding. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think that if he continues to work closely with IFC, he can probably get a little more leeway with them in terms of budgets if he, he brings home an Oscar for them. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that would probably be their first kind of taste of Oscar success as well. Hmm. Um, okay, we're going to talk now about... Um, uh, what we think is Mr. Linklater's most experimental film. He's a guy who's kind of played with styles and uh, different techniques and stuff throughout his career. Um, but notably, uh, he has kind of one uh, rather large stylistic kind of uh, uh, kind of expedition from the norm. Um, and we're going to talk about tape. Uh, why would we talk about tape when Richard Linklater is a man who has obviously made films uh, involving kind of animation and rotoscoping? Uh, because it's kind of, in some ways, it's a huge. It, it's kind of like distilling his his interest down to a kind of a few key things. You know, he's he's always liked making films about a limited number of characters. Certainly, like you say, in in before sunrise, sunset, and midnight, the idea of just two characters having a conversation for a very long time. Um, but this is a case of him, a tape is him adapt, adapting someone else's work, in this case a a, a play, uh, but also one in which has a very limited scope. It all takes place in a single hotel room, it only has three characters, and it's also shot entirely on uh, on videotape or, or commercially available vis- uh, uh, digital. And uh, it looks, unlike any of his other films, it has a different... It has a different tone and feel to his other films, and even though you can clearly see that it's him in terms of uh, the, the the themes and the uh, general approach, it also kind of has this. It feels like a, a real outlier in his uh, filmography. Mm. It doesn't have any real lightness about it, does it? it no. It's quite uh, depressing. It is, yeah. For people who don't know, Tape is a film in which uh, Ethan Hawke plays a uh, a kind of drug dealer who invites his friend, played by Robert Sean Leonard. Did I get those orders, yeah. the order of his name right? Let's just say you did. Yeah, okay. Um, Robert Love Hewitt. Um, <laughs> uh, he invites him because he, he's come home for a uh, film festival. He's a filmmaker, and they kind of meet up in Ethan Hawke's hotel room. And over the course of a uh, of a, of ninety minutes, the film also happens in in real time, which is again kind of distilling down something that uh, Linklater likes to do quite a lot. Um, Ethan Hawke tries to convince him that he uh, that that when they were younger, uh, Robert Sean Leonard uh, committed a crime, and just kind of it, it's all about the interplay between the two characters. Uh, and later on, Uma Thurman, who shows up as well, sort of in the last third to really kind of kick things up a notch. Um, 
yeah, it's just about their conversation about their past and their sort of shared recriminations. Um, it you kind of mentioned the kind of digital aspect of it. Um, at that point, uh, that was kind of the before. Uh, the kind of early 2000s where digital became a kind of viable cinema medium. It was still very much in the kind of Chuck and Buck idea that it, it looks like video, it looks like, you know, a bit crappy, um, and it's kind of drawing attention to itself. Um, he kind of then kind of went back to working on film, uh, um, kind of as on the whole. Um, do you think he viewed tape purely as an experiment of form, or do you think it's also an experiment of content? I think it's a bit of both. I think that you can really see the film has a different energy to a lot of his films because it's shot handheld and it's shot uh, in this enclosed space on you know, small commercially available cameras. Um, the way the camera moves is very uh, kind of rapid. For example, whenever he has to do uh, kind of, uh, instead of doing traditional like shot reverse shot, uh, framing, he'll just flip the camera between two people, and you know, there's just this general feeling of um, people, you know, sort of big movie stars, and a sort of very acclaimed director having kind of larking around, really. Mm. And uh, it it doesn't really work, does it? Kind of if I if I had to sit down, if someone asked me and said, "List Richard Linklater's films," and I kind of sit there with my tongue out and kind of uh, scratch my head for a bit, and I'd probably write most of them down and the one I'd always forget would be tape. Yeah, um I was surprised by how much I liked it this time. I I think I had um, when I was thinking about the ones to watch, tape was the one I was like, oh, tape. But when I when I rewatched it, I thought it's very very good in terms of structure because I think the the play it's based on in terms of uh you know, free act structure and in terms of kind of escalating the tension and the drama it's very very well constructed you can kind of see the points at which okay this element gets added in there and this kind of makes things a little more tense and this revelation comes at the right time um i think mainly what i i disliked about it uh, and what had kind of colored my impression of it was ethan hawke's performance because he plays a guy who's clearly coked out of his mind and as such is very very annoying Mm. And he's very big, and I think <clears throat> I think it's about like eighty twenty percent of his performance. Like eighty percent is him being this kind of Iago figure who's being kind of mischievous and and trying to get this guy to admit something that may or may not have happened, and just kind of wheedling his way into his psyche. But then twenty percent is him just being kind of is like running around on beds and spelling out party, which people will have heard as the as the intro clip to this uh, segment. Um, yeah, so where he's just like being really, really big. Um, I think also something I didn't realize at the time, but now realizes he would have come off starring in Hamlet and a Training Day, which are two kind of very intense, very moody films. So I think viewed as uh, this, viewing this as like him letting off steam, it's a little more forgivable how big he is. Mm. Yeah, as I mentioned kind of earlier, <clears throat> we talk about. Um, it being kind of his most experimental film, um, but also things like Waking Life and Scanner Darkly, which uh, are kind of uh, definitely formally experimental because they are rotoscope animation on top of um, kind of filmed performance. Um, we didn't probably choose those um, because they don't. They they definitely feel like Richard Linklater films. 
Yeah, Waking Life especially just feels like a kind of a redux of Slacker, but in mm. animation, you know, it comes 10 years later again. It's people having conversations. It's a little more uh, visually kind of uh, interesting because of the, the way that the rotoscoped animation allows the film to do more expressive things by like having an, a man who's very, very angry be bright red. Um, they can stage in the middle of a conversation a kind of a quite bloody shootout for no real reason. But, you know, even with those kind of touches, it still feels very much like a link later film. Um, it's also, it's very fun if you watch that and Slacker back to back, but only if you watch Waking Life first, because if you watch Waking Life and then go straight into Slacker, Richard Linklater's first line is, I just had the weirdest dream. <laughs> and also you realise that he talks in there about um, his dreams in which someone always gets hit by a car, which is funny because that immediately happens in Slacker, but also is a kind of a major plot point in Waking Life as well. Scanner mm. Darkly now uh, seems like quite a kind of big film in terms of like who's in it and the fact that it's kind of sci-fi and stuff. Um, but it really is quite an intimate kind of low budget kind of um, homemade sci-fi in the kind of mold of, you know, the kind of primer and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah. I think that's, that's really the only way you could make a film like that with, with Richard Linklater and also the, because of his, you know, his general kind of style is, is not especially flashy and you, in, the fact that it's a lot of people sitting around talking in uh, houses that are clearly um, Austin. <laughs> um, mm, yeah. That you know that it obviously feels very much like him in there. But also, the use of rotoscoping is very good at creating a distancing effect and really allowing it to have these kind of weird touches. You know, where people's heads turn into bugs to represent the uh, the effects of the drugs, or you know, the the whole. Um, the kind of camouflage uh, uniform that Keanu Reeves' character wears, where it just flashes loads of different faces up, which is the sort of thing that you could probably do in live action, but it'd be very, very expensive. But mm. but in animation, you can do it cheaply, and it still look, it looks kind of cool. Uh, in terms of other oddities he's made, the only other one that really kind of stands out in any real way, I guess would be something like the Newton boys, the mm. uh, kind of period kind of gangster film we made. Uh, I think it was straight after days and confused, maybe. I think it was after before sunrise. Right. Okay. So it was, it was actually a few films into his, into his career. Um, in terms of where that one sits in the kind of list of oddities, would that be kind of next down, down the order? Yeah, I, I'd say so. I mean, obviously it's not as, kind of formally daring as tape or waking life because it, it looks like a fairly straightforward film but uh, it's you know a film based on history which he'd never done up to that point it's a film that's got kind of a lavish setting i think it was his first proper studio film as well mm. so it's like it, it feels certainly in terms of that that first sort of 10 years of his career it feels like a real outlier but you know i think that there are st his touches to it in that it's kind of it's not really hugely plot based it's more just about the the newton boys kind of hanging out and just kind of the the fun chemistry of his cast but you can kind of see uh how it's it it, it was kind of uh, an odd fit for him at that time um i don't think he'd he'd quite had the experience to handle a film with like a, a, mod, a moderate budget mm, mm, absolutely um <clears throat> now we're going to move on to the bit we kind of don't really want to talk about uh no one's perfect in terms of uh, uh, kind of filmmaking and filmography. Um, so we need to talk about Richard Linklater's worst film. 
and uh, kind of that's quite difficult because all these films are pretty good, um, and even the the ones that we don't particularly like, there's something to enjoy in. Um, but we've picked uh, Fast Food Nation. Wow, tastes like it's right off the grill. You don't think it needs like liquid smokes? No, 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 no. I think it's perfect. Uh, why have we picked this one? Ed? Because it's uh, it's an interesting idea, which is taking this non-fiction book by Eric Schlosser, which is all about the history of fast food and particularly McDonald's, and talking about you know things like the the cost of it in terms of of health and the effect it has on migrant workers. Essentially, a book that was trying to be for the fast food industry, what Upton Sinclair's The Jungle was for like cattle plants and things like that. You know, just trying to get across the human cost of of uh, of this industry but then instead of doing it as a straightforward documentary or or, or something like that they try and dramatize dramatize it and turn it into a kind of a shortcuts slash crash style uh, uh drama in which people all these different characters in different areas of the industry are shown and they have their stories told and they try and put a human face on it but kind of really doesn't work yeah, and none none of the individual threads are particularly interesting. I mean, I've I've kind of seen the film twice. The most recent time was maybe five years ago, um, and I can't remember any of the characters. I can mm. remember Bob, Bobby Cannavale was a kind of like a sleazy kind of boss, wasn't he? He was kind of banging yeah. people off the production line, but I can't really remember too too many other individual people from it. Yeah, I can remember. Um... Greg Kinnear as the guy who's investigating whether or not there's uh, fecal matter in the meat. Yeah. Um, but that's mainly just because he's the he's like the the audience surrogate in some ways, and he's the guy that kind of goes through and touches upon all of these different stories in one way or another. Um, but it's not a particularly compelling story. It is most interesting now because Eli Coltrane has a very small role in it. Which is mm-hmm. fun because you can just imagine that they would—they like must have shot like two weeks of Boyhood and then gone straight into Fast Food Nation at the time. Um, mm, yeah, but yeah, it's just a very—it's—it's it's just not a very compelling film. And also, I think it, Linklater is someone who I think is his very has very strong political beliefs. I think that kind of filters through his uh, his more sort of philosophical musings in his film. Um, I think that sort of righteous fury and anger doesn't really suit his style of filmmaking because he is someone who seems to be so kind of laid back that when he kind of gets really, really angry, it it kind of becomes a little incoherent. Yeah. It also a film that struck me as a film that certainly um, had much less of an impact in, in the UK. For example, I went to see it at the cinema and many of the things that you're told in the film about um, the kind of, ethics of fast food production and and kind of well mass food production really is stuff that we've seen kind of on channel four and bbc one documentaries uh like weekly for years uh kind of went through a big burst in the middle of the 2000s of kind of people talking about ethical food production and uh, you know kind of high welfare meat and it's you know things like that and it, it seemed to me when when i watched fast food nation that all this stuff was kind of old news yeah, it does feel like uh, it does kind of feel warmed over. I think it also doesn't help that the book had much of a bigger impact. I think that people are aware of the things that go on in the fast food industry just through that and through cultural osmosis. So mm. when you try and make a film dramatizing that stuff, 
it just comes across as kind of a little unnecessary you know even though it's obviously i think it's it's a kind of a noble failure in that linklater is trying to expose something that clearly angers him a great deal and that, you know he wants to try and effect change in some way um the film itself because of the the actual story it's trying to tell and the kind of limpness of the characters it all comes across as being a little toothless mm. if he wants to make a real change he should probably talk to his good friend matthew mcconaughey who is the uh the face and voice of the american beef council so uh maybe you should have a word with him um, do you know what the american beef council's slogan is uh, is it meat is a flat circle <laughs> no it's that's what i like about these cows i get older <laughs> they no, it's um beef colon it's what's for dinner. No, I don't mean beef colon is what's for dinner. <laughs> Although there's just a colon. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Uh, if you eat a McDonald's, it's it's probably ninety percent colon. Uh, the rest is kind of hoof and eyelid, uh, if you're lucky. But yeah. Um, uh, also, it's kind of worth noting that um, Schlosser actually went on to make a documentary a couple of years after called Food Inc., which is basically the film they probably should have made in the first place. Mm, and, um, which had much- I'd, 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 all. Yeah, it's had a much bigger impact, and it's actually really, really good. Yeah, I think that um, that that obviously is the more straightforward way, and that's probably why it's been so effective because you just lay out the facts in a way that's very easily digestible. Whereas that whole kind of uh, you know different stories and kind of cross cutting between the two and trying to create some sort of mosaic of an industry is the sort of thing that you know very few people can do well um altman did it well a few times um paul thomas anderson did it with magnolia you know and then everyone else it just feels like it feels too much like he was chasing a trend because Mm -hmm. after crash that approach became very very popular in independent film and i think that that's one of the real big problems with the with it is it doesn't feel like he's putting his own stamp on material it just feels like he's he's looking around and saying that's that's the thing that people are doing maybe i could do that for for this particular story in a way that probably uh wouldn't be as interesting as if for example he had just followed the greg kinnear character and just followed him as he kind of encountered all of these people instead of kind of showing us the boring lives of uh you know fast food workers Mm, yeah fast food nation then a rare duffer from the man link later. Um, so yeah, we've come to the end. Uh, we've talked about uh, four of his kind of uh, four of his films um, in kind of broad terms. Uh, we're going to talk about um, what is going to be his crowning achievement and what we regard as his crowning achievement. Um, and that's going to be kind of quite difficult, given that you know you probably could choose one or two things that will ultimately be remembered for. But between us, uh, we've decided to go for the before trilogy. If you're going to spend another 56 more years together, yeah. what about me would you like to change? What? That's another one of your can't-win questions. I'm not answering that. What do you mean? There's not one thing you'd like to change about me? I'm perfect? Okay. Okay. Actually, <laughs> one thing. if I could change one thing about uh-huh. you, it would be for you to stop trying to change me. You're a very skilled mm-hmm. manipulator. Well, I'm uh-huh. on to you. I know how you work. You think? Yeah, I know everything about you. Here we go. Let's go through here. I don't think you do, actually. <laughs> no? Yeah. Well, I know you better than I know anybody else on the planet, but maybe I that's mean, not right saying now, much. What? This is great. Right. You know, I feel yeah. close to you. Yeah. But sometimes, I don't know, I feel like uh, 
You're breathing helium and I'm breathing oxygen. What makes you say that? See? I'm well, trying to on, truly connect and you make a joke. <laughs> and the reason I say it would it would be hard to pick one of two, with two being boyhood, um I've got every I mean I'm I'm convinced it might be kind of thought of as his crowning achievement in the sense that if it does win the Oscar, then yes, that's very, very uh uh, kind of good for him and 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 a kind of a, a, a unnecessary kind of award given, but it's recognition, isn't it? Um, but also because it took so long to do and the production of it, which we've talked about before, uh, could be seen as this kind of like you know long, long labour of love. But we've chosen the before trilogy um, because it kind of actually meets both those requirements anyway. It's something that's taken a long time and it's developed naturally and uh, it really does reflect everything about Richard Linklater's filmmaking ideas whilst also being great films. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I like about it over Boyhood, which is a film that I, I do like, is that uh, it's that, that it stands up a lot... They, they stand up a lot better outside of the kind of the gimmick. Well, you know, mm-hmm. gimmick is, is kind of too harsh word, but the, the idea of him, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy kind of coming together every nine years and making films following these characters live, essentially doing a fictionalised version of the 7-Up series, um, which is not something that uh, I think they intended to do when they started. I don't think they kind of thought when they made Before Sunrise in 1995 that, like, all right, nine years later, we'll come together, we'll see what these these guys are up to. I think that it's just kind of... they found themselves as they kind of grew up and as they aged and matured thinking what would these characters be up to now and wanted to revisit them and i think what's great about each subsequent film in the series is it enriches the ones before um like you don't watch before sunset and it doesn't kind of although in a sense it does spoil the ending of before sunrise and that you lose that ambiguity and thinking you know or you know what happened did they meet up again you know they have to answer that question it does create a, a kind of a richer portrait of these two characters um, and the way that we just kind of drop in on their lives every couple of years. Mm. Do you think that they are going to continue making them? I know they've said no, but that doesn't particularly mean anything. It doesn't mean that in, what is it, like five, six years' time, they'll kind of think about it and, and have a good idea. Um yeah, I, I, I'd like them to do it. I think it's entirely up to them. I think the, the three films, as they exist, are wonderful. I think Before Midnight offered a, a, a good end point for the story if they wanted to end it there, um, mm-hmm. which is all you could really hope for for a, for a film series, to have a natural end point that feels right. Um, whether or not they continue to do it, I think, depends on them and where they are in their lives. Um, but yeah, I think that Either way, I'd be happy with it. I, I would like to see those characters again, but you know, I, I don't feel like they need to kind of force it and make themselves do it. But at the same time, those films, from what I understand, they don't take a huge amount of time to actually write and shoot and make because it's essentially those guys get together, they kind of come up with a story, improvise the dialogue and kind of make it into some sort of structure and then shoot it, which is mm. why Before Midnight was such a kind of a surprise to people because I think a story broke in early 2013, which was essentially saying, oh, they made another one of those before <clears throat> films. Mm. It's like they hadn't announced that they were working on it. They just announced that they'd shot it and then it was due out in the summer. Um, so I think that if they do make another one, it'd make a, it'd be, a, a again, they'd probably do it as kind of a big surprise because, you know, in another 
uh, if, if they make one for 2022 um then i think they would want to do it kind of secretly rather than have it be this thing they announce to the world mm, absolutely well i wonder where which uh city they'll walk around uh we've had kind of vienna paris and uh kind of rural greece uh whether it will be you know, like Leeds, <laughs> is that they could just walk around, you know, Cornish Swindon, Ridge. yeah, yeah, just kind of hang around, um, kind of provincial England, um, and see what happens, and they just kind of be in a Frankie and Benny's, and be like, oh, this is wank. <laughs> uh, um, which is your favourite of the three films, Ed? Uh, I'd probably go for Before Sunset. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the one. That was the first of the, them that I saw because that was the one that came out when I was really starting to get into film in sort of 2004, 2005. And uh, I really like how close the huge the idea of being almost in real time. Like the first two, the, the first one and the, the last one aren't really in real time. They both take place over some 24 hours, but uh, I, I just really like the mix of kind of hopefulness and melancholy in the first one in the, in the, uh, in Before Sunset, because Before Sunrise is very hopeful and Before mm-hmm. Midnight is very melancholy. And the, the second one has the kind of the right balance between the two. Um, it's interesting that Before Midnight, uh, stands out, uh, for a reason that kind of is really odd and but it kind of makes sense if you, when you're watching it, but like there's a big scene with other people mm. and they kind of sat around having, um, dinner and I remember when I saw the film, all of a sudden when that scene started, I was just like, uh, what's this? This, this is, this is wrong. What's happened? <laughs> and it, it all of a sudden didn't quite. And, and for that, that's the only moment in all three films. It doesn't quite work as well for me. And it's purely because it's not just, um, Jesse and Celine. Yeah. It does feel a little odd. Um, although before midnight does kind of, uh, revert back to being just them for its final third when it gets very dark and very intense. Mm, yeah, yeah, and that, it owes a lot to tape as well. That mm. that uh, sequence, especially in the hotel room, where they kind of argue, try and have makeup sex, then just basically implode. Yeah, yeah, it definitely feels like a a kind of a more fully realised version of 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 tape in that regard. Mm. And uh, Ethan Hawke is far less annoying. Oh yeah, considerably less so. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's clearly mellowed a little bit in the uh, in the twelve years between the two films. Mm. Um, despite, you know, beyond saying that uh, these three films are his crowning achievement do you have a favourite Richard Linklater film that we haven't talked about? Uh, one that I do enjoy revisiting a lot mainly because it's always on IFC is um, Dazed and Confused mm-hmm. which is just a, a fantastically fun one it's got a wonderful atmosphere Like I think you've described it as that last day of school the first yeah. day of summer kind of vibe which is a, a thing that a lot a lot of films kind of try and capture as kind of a pit of, in terms of uh, coming of age stories, but also it's just a, it's really one of his best in terms of a, as in terms of being an ensemble film, because it mm-hmm. has all these great young actors who would go on to be super famous, just kind of like showing up in small roles. But, um, you know, all the characters are very well sketched. They're all very fun to hang around with. Um, I think that's one of the ones that is just the most kind of purely enjoyable to revisit over and over. Yeah, it's certainly mine. I, I, it's the one I've seen the most times. I've also kind of screened it for audiences as well. And it, we showed it last, at the end of last term at, at university. And, and it, well, it has that kind of, yeah, school's out vibe. And, you know, it's it's just a really warm, affectionate um, film with just a kick-ass soundtrack. 
Mm, yeah, that helps as well. I think that's that has probably the the best soundtrack of all of his films. Although uh, the School of Rock one is is very good as well, and I imagine it probably made a lot of money for some people like Jonathan Richman who uh, don't get their music on soundtracks very often. Let yeah, that's one one benefit of having Mike White and Richard Linklater make your big budget film <laughs> is uh, you know uh, indie troubadours like uh, Jonathan Richman will probably pick up a paycheck. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to hear him talk about his new film. Um, that's what I'm talking about, which is the currently working title for that film, which I don't think is due out this year. They will be previewed on the last episode. I actually hear that it's going to come out in 2016. Um, but it's um, uh, that's kind of a spiritual sequel to Days Confused in terms of it being a big ensemble piece, kind of set in educational establishment. But uh, this time it's college. Yeah, I think that that one, I feel sorry for the, the actors purely because, you know, so many people in the first one, like, uh, you know, Mila Jovovich is in it, Ben Affleck's in it, Matthew McConaughey obviously is kind of a big role. Um, for, you know, all those young unknown actors have got a lot to live up to in terms of their future careers. Mm, it's got Kurt Russell's son in it. Oh, yeah, he yeah he he was great in uh, 22 Jump Street. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he's he's kind of one of the baseball kids, which makes sense given... You know, his old man's proclivities. But yeah, that's Richard Linklater um, uh, in a nutshell, really. If you haven't kind of, um, you know, spent a lot of time in his world, then it's it's a good place to spend a few hours. Yeah, definitely. I think he's he's someone with a very kind of rich and varied uh, filmography. I mean, we've only really scratched the surface, which I think is what we want to do with these artist profiles, is to kind of highlight notable films and then use them as kind of a jumping off point. Um, but yeah, I think that, he is he's just one of the more fascinating of that generation of of people who you know didn't go to film school or or may have taken like a class <laughs> and that was about it who who kind of became self-taught filmmakers who and a really good example of someone who really has evolved over that time as opposed to say his fellow Austinite Robert Rodriguez who kind of had mm. a similar who had a similar sort of background and then didn't quite make the leap to, to really maturing as an artist in the way that uh, Linklater has. Mm. Um, and next month uh, we'll be doing another one of these. Um, and the artist for uh, February um, is someone who we're going to really struggle to talk about in the context of five films because he has uh, directed and been in like seven million films. Um, we're talking about Clint Eastwood, uh, which should be interesting. Ed. Yeah, especially uh, given his... Uh, the staggering success of American Sniper. I think there's a lot of uh, interesting things to discuss with that one. Mm, yeah, um, and we're probably going to get deep into some really kind of pretty unpleasant politics. <laughs> um, and um, maybe one of his five films should be that skit he did with the empty chair at the uh, Republican Congress, which was, you know, one of the worst things I think I've ever seen. I think it's the Rosetta Stone of his uh, filmography. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so yeah if you've enjoyed the show please subscribe to us on the itunes you can also listen to us um on our website i think and what's the other thing stitcher radio yeah, stitcher smart radio we're on there um so yeah we're also on facebook twitter find us like us follow us um all that kind of stuff uh so yeah we'll be back uh, next week with something interesting i hope um until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me, and goodbye from me.